So before we get started, I just wanted to say uh, To Hell and Back is a podcast about the movers and shakers. Um, but when you get a text from your buddy Kevin about a week before saying, hey, I'm coming down for 24 hours, you don't ever pass that up. So I just wanted to preface that. Uh, moving forward, most of these will focus on entrepreneurs in Austin, but uh, this was too good of an opportunity. So thank you, Kevin, uh, for coming down. I'll be an Austin local for a day. For a know? day. All right, let's get this thing started. So let's see, I graduated high school, still lived in Sonoma County, then went to the JC for a couple of years pursuing a kinesiology degree because mm. it seemed applicable to climbing. But sure. really, I was just kind of miserable. Um, I just wanted to be climbing. And I was kind of right on this verge of commitment where I could just start climbing full time and commit to it. It was kind of a leap of faith moment. And I finally did it after a couple of years of, of committing to the JC. I just decided to, to quit college and climb full time. And if I could go back in time, I would do it sooner. And you can say fuck on this podcast, by the way. Oh, I it'll come. That. Don't yeah. worry. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck school. No. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, you know, when I look back, I'm really grateful that I, I made that decision. Because if I had followed through with a kinesiology degree, I mean, maybe I'd be a coach or something. But I don't think so. I think I would have just started climbing full time two years after I did. And I wouldn't really be applying that degree today. Sure. So for me... I think much of my education just comes through life experience and just going for things and figuring it out as I go and seeking really good advice from people that I trust that know their shit. And that's kind of kind of been my form of education in any realm, whether it's nonprofit work or startup shit or philanthropy or whatever, you know, um, there's just so much to learn by doing it. And I really appreciate that. And that goes for climbing as well. It's like, I don't know anything about high ball bouldering or big wall climbing. I just kind of go for it and seek out good mentors and try not to kill yourself. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about the Don Wall first, if if people don't know where it is or, or what it's about. Sure, sure. Well, the catalyst for the Don Wall was actually something much smaller, like a thousand times smaller. Uh, it was like a 40-foot boulder in the eastern Sierra and Bishop called Ambrosia. And at the time, I had spent maybe three, four, or five years totally dedicating myself and being completely obsessed with the discipline of highball bouldering. I love the risk of it. I love the aesthetics of these lines that you get to put up. I traveled all around the world just looking up at lines that had never been climbed before and putting it, just rolling the dice. And I'm not a gambling guy, but like just putting it all on the line over and over and over again. And I loved it. It was like this total mastery and control in the moment that you do it. And... Highball bouldering is interesting in that you just kind of decide and then you go do. There's no second guessing once you're up there kind of thing. So when I finished Ambrosia, I'll never forget, it was January 9th, 2009. It was like 9.15 in the morning. It's just like perfect, sunny morning. And sitting on top, I knew I got away with something. You know when you roll the dice and you get away with it? You take a corner too fast or you're playing with fireworks and you just get away with it? Yeah. I had that distinct feeling while sitting on the top of, the, of Ambrosia. My buddy Charlie turned to my friend Patrick after I topped out and he's like, I think I'm going to throw up. <laughs> <laughs> but when I finished Ambrosia, I knew why that was important. Is I knew that I, had, I was at the top of my game in this discipline, right? But I was totally at the end of the line. Because to push it further, to push highball bouldering past ambrosia would basically mean becoming a free soloist and that was pretty clear to me based on my experience on ambrosia and knowing that yeah if i really dropped it from the top 60 mm, 40 that you you know it's it's yeah. it's really really big so i didn't just need a new project 
because that's the cycle of climbing, right? You finish your project, you find a new one. I needed a whole new discipline of the sport to throw myself into. So it was a real reinvention moment and a real moment of being um, lost and not knowing which direction to take my climbing. And it was when progression came out that I saw for the first time that footage of Tommy. Uh, and that footage just blew my mind. And the end of that clip, I'll never forget, it's like this sunset footage and it, it's Tommy's voice. And he's basically saying that if, if the next generation that's doing all this awesome stuff on boulders and sport climbs could apply their talent to the big walls, that's what it would take to free climb this project. And he's like, I don't know if I can ever do this, but I want to inspire the next generation to come, uh, to come check it out. So I basically heard it as an invite, like throwing down the gauntlet. And I was like, oh, shit. I was the only one dumb enough to raise my hand. Yeah. So I called him out of the blue and asked him if he needed a partner, just based solely on that footage. We had climbed together one day because we were both on the Marmot athlete team. Uh, we climbed one day together in Lake Tahoe, bouldering over some snow, and that was it. So we really we were strangers. We knew each other by reputation, but that's it. Uh, and to my utter shock, he said yes. So that that's what began this whole thing was kind of taking one discipline and running as far as I could with it, as far as I was willing, and then having the choice and making the choice to completely switch gears and reinvent in a whole new discipline that I really had no experience in. So, so after that point, you worked on the Don Wall with him for six years, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about that. <laughs> Which part? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> how, how did your partnership evolve over that time? Well, early on, I obviously had no experience big wall free climbing at all. So I was a fish out of water up there. I had no idea what I was doing, you know. I was a professional climber. I was supposed to be good at this sport. And then when I get up on the wall, I'm just like crippled with fear. And I was just pathetic. I, I could not climb. I was like, I'm supposed to be good at this sport. What am I doing up here? So early on, Tommy was much more the mentor and I was much more the pupil for years, for years and years. Early on, I could do a lot of the moves. I did like the dyno, for example, in the first or second year of being up on the wall. But I didn't have the confidence or the experience or the composure necessary at all to lead any of those pitches or have any hope of putting it all together. So that's that was probably the biggest evolution over the, the time was going from being kind of a mentor-pupil relationship to being more equals instead of and me being just a support for Tommy, who is really the, the likely one to do this, to it being really important that we do it together. And those things all, th that shifted all right at the very end. Like right at the very end. It was, it was quite a big gap there for many years. Was there like a, a really distinct moment in the Donwall process where you were like, oh shit, this is, this is dark. Like I am, I'm not sure if I'm ready for this or I need, I'm like questioning my character. Mm -hmm. Should I even rock climb anymore? Mm -hmm. uh, I would say the low point came this season that we sent actually. So on August 16th, 2014, one of my super good friends died soloing in Tuolumne. His name is Brad Parker. And that just like shook not only me, but our entire community to our core. 
And in the wake of that, it, it pulled us all together, but it also made rock climbing feel kind of trivial at the moment and selfish. And there was, there was just so much grieving and healing going on that it was really hard to focus on training and focus on leaving all of my closest friends and family to basically go live in the valley for three or four months while I tried to climb a rock, you know? So it kind of put things in a perspective, not in a super helpful way for focusing on the Donwell. Uh, so I remember writing Tommy and just being super honest that my motivation was really low this season and I didn't know what to do about it. And he wrote back and just, you know, shared what an opportunity he thought we had to be these adventurers in the modern world, these explorers really in this uh, vertical landscape. And you don't really get this opportunity very often to break new ground and be an explorer when we've been to all the highest peaks and into the bottom of most of the oceans and across all of the poles and all of these things, right? Um, so he really saw this as, as a gift and he really valued our partnership and he wanted to see it through. So he kind of took all the pressure off and was just like, look, come, come hang out. You know, I've recovered from divorces in, while climbing in Yosemite. It's a really cathartic place. Just like come hang out, no pressure. If you get the fire while we're up there, great. If not, no worries. We just kind of like took the pressure off. And that's really how the season began. Like I showed up in Yosemite, like I'm just gonna belay Tommy and hang out and have a good time. That's how it started. I had no idea that that's how it was going to end. I'd like to know, like, you know, topping out, what, can you even describe that feeling? I'll, I'll try to describe the feeling by first describing the feeling of day one. Okay. Working on the project. So when I asked Tommy if he needed a partner, he said, meet me in the valley in October. I said, okay. I show up in the valley floor in the meadow looking up. I don't even know. I can't even tell where the line is. Sure. That wall is so, but I'm just yeah, like, yeah. I think it's to the right of the nose, but I, I don't know. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I said, yeah. no idea. He was like, okay, right. You know, so we climbed up the bottom pitches that day. And then the next day we hiked up to the top. So we met at the manure pile buttress parking lot each shouldered 80 pound haul bags, wow. including his like 70 year old dad. And we started hiking up the trail. <laughs> you hiked, you hiked his seven year old dad up there. I followed him. So it was Tommy and then his dad and then me like <laughs> dying. Shit. And yeah. as I was hiking up the trail, like it's still hot in October. I should say Tommy's dad is a total badass. He's a beast. A total badass. Yeah. 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 He's a beast. Yeah. Uh, and like our, you're just pouring sweat and our legs are burning and it, you know, we're getting bit by mosquitoes and my nostrils are burning cause Tommy's dad keeps crop dusting me <laughs> as we're hiking. And it's just pretty much miserable. It's the, the whole old time. age. You can't blame right? I was like, fuck man, yeah. come on. And like five hours later we get to the top of the wall. Uh -huh. and I remember dropping that freaking haul bag finally and just feeling totally weightless and being like, yeah, that felt good. You know, which is like a pretty weird thing to say after five hours of like pretty obvious suffering but <laughs> yeah so when i topped out i i really felt that same sense of weightlessness that i did on day one but it was also met with like this bittersweet sadness that the journey was over you know uh, so it was kind of balancing those two things at the same time i'll never forget the morning we woke up on the ship's bow only 200 feet from the summit it was like now it's mid-january we haven't walked in three weeks uh we're on the ship's bow, so it's kind of nice. You can walk around a little bit. And it's super cold. The sun's coming down the wall, and it finally hits us, and we're warming up. We're playing some music out of our phone. And we know that 
we're going to top out today, which is like a pretty crazy self-awareness to have that like this whole journey is about to be over. You know, it's like looking at the finish line and all you have to do is go walk across it. You got to shimmy up this 512 flare and then under cling off with this thing with a leg bar and then yeah, it's do like a right 513 slab and then do flare, like a like 12 lie back. Right but there. basically you just got to like walk yeah. compared to what you've been through over the last six years, you just got to like walk across the finish line. Sure. Yep. Um, totally walk. But that last day was yeah. really hard and really stressful. Yeah. Uh, this I don't want a total asshole. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to like <laughs> Tommy cruised it. I was like yeah. struggling, but yeah. we know that the end is right there. And that was just such a surreal moment to be sitting there and soaking it in and really nodding, not wanting that to pass. Yeah. yeah. It was just like, can we just bottle this up and, and just hang out? So we knew that that the whole thing was about to be over. And by that point, all you had to do was look down at the meadow and know that like life was about to get crazy. You know, you can see news trucks and stuff. It's January. It's like minus something in the Valley floor. Why are there 200 people in the meadow? You know, it's weird. So it was a bit disorienting topping out uh, as I well. Imagine, yeah. You know, imagine living a really simple life. Living on a wall is pretty straightforward. You know, your priorities are few. Sure. <laughs> yeah. It's like sleep, coffee, climb, dinner. Yeah. Sleep, coffee, climb, dinner over and over. <laughs> sure. And over. That's pretty much it. <laughs> uh, and we knew that life was about to be a lot crazier and that uh, this whole journey was going to be over. And you don't always have that foresight, I feel like. Uh, I feel like we came down to a different world than the one we left. You know, we enjoyed a lot of anonymity before, and luckily a lot of that has come back. But right afterwards, it was crazy. I was like in a pancake shop in New Jersey, and people knew who I was. It was weird, you know, and I didn't like it. Like, I think being actually famous would suck. I think Tommy and I have been put into this position of kind of being ambassadors for our sport on a much larger level than we ever uh, aimed for or anticipated. And we take that responsibility seriously as well. So we, we realize we have these larger platforms now than when we started. And that's something that we should be respectful of and use our voice when we need to speak up or feel like speaking up and believing in, in certain things. And that's, that's a gift. To have that. Uh, okay, well, the Dawn Wall is done, so I guess the big question is, uh, you know, what's, what's next? next? <laughs> yeah, not climbing. I mean, I know you got a, a project, you know, a climbing project out there, but mm -hmm. you know, we've we've been talking over the past couple months, and it seems like maybe there's something else pretty cool on the horizon. Yeah, you know, I have always felt that being good at climbing was pretty much an accident, mm -hmm. and I still feel that way. Like I, tr I basically trained for the Don Wall by hangboarding and doing push-ups. Like it wasn't a real, like complicated training program. So I've always need more going on in my life to be to have that sense of fulfillment and purpose. Yeah. And in the wake of the Don Wall, on the, on the nonprofit side, I've always wanted to get more kids into climbing. So I've got this idea. Uh, I want to get a million kids into the sport. How do I get a million kids into the sport? I think we need to do two things. You need to break down the cost barrier and you need to break down the proximity barrier. But the Boys and Girls Club of America, if you just take that as a nonprofit, they serve four and a half million youth. They have 4,000 clubs across the country. So there's a great pool of kids that are hanging out after school already, no matter what. In 2010, I installed a wall in Sonoma, uh, about 30 minutes from where I live. 
So now 500 kids a year cycle through this wall as part of their after school program. So pilot 2.0 is gonna happen in St. Louis. We're gonna install a brand new amazing wall by Eldorado. Sowell is providing all of, uh, all of the apparel and the holds and the volumes and the cool packs and the rental shoes and all this stuff. And we're doing this cool thing where we break down the proximity barrier by putting it where the kids are after school already, but we're also breaking down the cost barrier. So what Sowell is going to do is they're going to do like a Tom Shoes one-for-one one model kind of thing. So pretty soon, if you buy a pair of Sowell climbing shoes, it'll produce a day pass for a kid to go climbing. So we're kind of pushing both of those tracks forward simultaneously where we break down proximity barriers and cost barriers just to get more kids into it. Another area of focus has been um, the refugee crisis in, in Europe is something that struck close to home because um, the family whose property my wife Jackie and I got married on went over to Greece. When he came back, it was kind of this catalyst of what are we doing? We've got all this time. We can spend it however we want. And Jack and I just kind of looked at each other like, we got to go do something. Like, this is the largest humanitarian crisis of our generation. Are we going to just stay here and, like, just donate money to the Red Cross or go over there? So we relocated to Athens, where we went to the anarchist district of the city, where there were a bunch of abandoned buildings. And the local um, Greek people had literally kicked in the doors of these abandoned schools to basically create places for them to live they're called squats so we just posted up in the squats and just helped to build the infrastructure for these folks while they were kind of in transit and getting all their paperwork processed to be um, placed in germany or wherever they end up so we did things like fix the showers that weren't running and like buy a month worth of bread and then once all the basics were covered we just started to focus on the fun stuff. Like I built a little climbing wall. The climbing gym donated a bunch of panels and put them up there. It's super fun. Uh, and a friend of ours who was working at the port, we were working in the squats. She was doing all this educational work with the kids, but every day the, the art supplies and all the supplies she buy would disappear, just get absorbed into the camp. So she rented a shipping container and started to hold everything in the shipping container. Well, from that was born the School Box Project, which all of your donations today are going to. So I want to thank you all for showing up and donating to that cause, which is great because it allows us to take these shipping containers and place them in any camp wherever. Because what happens is they, they pop up, they go down, and they get relocated. These, the situation's highly dynamic. Change is the only constant over there right now. So it allows us to provide this trauma-informed education to the kids wherever it's wherever it's needed. So that's, you know, just the nonprofit side of things has kept us really busy. And then I'm looking at the climbing gym market myself as well. And, and speaking of to Helen back in the blog that you just released, uh, I can relate. I can relate. It's funny, for the longest time, I looked at the climbing gym market and just the, what it looked like to be a gym owner. And it, it looked miserable. It's like, man, <laughs> I don't know any climbing gym owners that climb anymore and they're all kind of overweight and uh, that's not true that's not true but there's like don't they don't seem to like that's get not cool dude they that's don't not get cool. to climb especially <laughs> you i mean shit <laughs> it's just like the lifestyle you know like it you seemed like you sacrificed so so much to to do it but you know it started with this desire not 
with a business ambition, but more with a social outcome, much like the work with the Boys and Girls Club and with the refugee crisis. To me, looking at and getting into the climbing gym market has nothing to do with economics. It has everything to do with the environment that you seek to create and the experiences that will be enabled by all of your effort. So that's why I'm calling uh, my gym's session. I'm calling it session because what is a session? It's time. And to me, like time is the most valuable thing we have in life. Like fuck money, fuck material things. Like it's nice to have those things, but to me, time is everything. We could all be having dinner with our family right now, but look, we're here. We're spending it with each other in this place. Everyone that's down there bouldering right now and tied in together, they're choosing to not spend their time doing anything else but being here. And that's what you created. And that's fucking awesome. And I think that that, especially now where our country is more divided than ever, we need these places to come together. Um, and climbing is a great epicenter. It's a great hub for drawing people together. Um, so I'm just like learning my way through it, right? Just going through the process that you went through and boy, is it a ride. Oh my God. I, I'm grateful that I experienced the Dawn wall because I'm looking back on that. And so many of those experiences are informing how I react to this path that I'm on now. Like with the Dawn wall, it was totally natural to have moments of doubt and fear and just like crippling, what the hell am I doing? Like with my life, I'm just dedicating it to this thing that may or may not ever happen. But as long as your commitment stays solid, it's fine. Like those feelings are totally normal. You, but as long as you have to stay committed, if the commitment doesn't waver, all the other emotions that come with the highs and lows of the path that you're on, you just got to ride it. It, that, I mean, that's what I learned on the Dawn Wall, and that's what I'm learning right now. We get really good news. You get really bad news, and it's rugged. It's exhausting, but I love it because what we're going to create are these just amazing spaces where you walk in and time is paused. I don't know what time it is right now. I don't even care. You know, I'm having a blast just hanging out here. Like, and I think that's the beauty of, of what we create are these, these spaces where time stands still, time is well spent, it's with the people that you love. It's with the community that you love and the activity that you love to do. And that's what it's about. One thing that I think shifted with the Dawn Wall is that it opened people's eyes to what you do if you commit to something that uh, is way beyond what you're capable of and help people zoom out from what am I gonna do this season to what am, what am I gonna be capable of five years from now? So instead of I wanna climb V7 next summer, I wanna climb V12 three summers from now, right? Or I wanna you know, do th this with my business. Well, no, zoom out and look at it on a five-year scale. Look at it on a 10-year scale. You, you mentioned that um, you felt that climbing had prepared you for facing some of the challenges in business. Mm -hmm. Can you give an example of some of the challenges you've run into so far? Well, looking at it more broadly, what the Donwall taught me is that when your ambition exceeds your ability, hardship is inevitable. It's just what you're signing up for. When Tommy and I started working on the Donwall, we were like nowhere close to being good enough climbers to do it. Sure. When we tricked ourselves into thinking that we could go on a push and have a chance in 2010, it was total delusion. You know, when we got up to pitch 13, which is now pitch 14, because we moved some anchors around, th 
we, we couldn't even do the moves. You know, like we were not close to red pointing these pitches yeah. at all. Uh, so the only question becomes, how do you respond to that hardship? Do you fear it or do you embrace it? And day, it's a daily choice. It's not a decision you make once. And this, this, hap this is applicable to anything in life where you have ambition, especially in getting a million kids climbing or, or opening a climbing gym or two or 20 or whatever. It's the same thing. Like if your ambition outstrips your ability, you have to know that the hardship is inevitable. But on a daily basis, you have to choose to fear it or embrace it. And if you fear it, your horizon of what you perceive as possible just gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And you try not to bump into the walls too much. And if you embrace it, it literally gets broader and broader and broader. But it's really hard. It's, it's something you have to decide every single day. And when you get a phone call or a text with bad news, it's just an invitation to make that decision again. And the Donwall taught me that. I can't tell you how many times we wrapped to the ground after a day of getting our asses kicked and unclipped from the rope and turn on our headlamps and start the hike down to the car. And those 15-minute walks from the base to the meadow were probably the most important 15 minutes every day in the three or 400 days we spent up on the wall working on it because that was the time that we got to write the memory for the day. So I kind of have this point of view where you get to decide how a memory sits with you. It doesn't just happen. So, okay, we finish a hard day of climbing. Maybe we don't send any of the pitches or we just get our asses hand to us or whatever. On the hike down, we get to decide whether or not that day was a success or not to focus on the negative or to focus on the positive. And you decide whether or not you're going to create a feedback loop that's going to keep you inspired and coming back to it or that just starts to crush your soul and make you never want to come back. Um, and that's, that's really important because there's th this uh, Nobel Prize winning um, guy. His name is Daniel Kahneman, and he, he's a behavioral economist. And his, his studies have found that we make decisions – uh, in part, not based on the experience we want to have, but on the memory we want to have of that experience. And as you know, those are like totally different things. So this is really important when you think about, all right, how am I going to choose to remember this? Yeah, it's a spin in a way, but that's clutch. You know, these are the, these are the decisions that are going to keep you coming back or going to turn you down a different path. And it's, it's a total choice how you write these memories. Um, to some extent, especially the type two fun ones where you can look at it both ways, yeah, yeah. you know, which, which side of the coin is going to come up when you think about that experience. Is it going to be the sour one or is it going to be the positive one? And I think it's really important to, to be deliberate in that choice.